how do I really know I'm of value and worth? It can't simply be your brain or your money or your career or your family, because all of that can be taken away. When everything else is shaken, what is unshakable? And it was Christ. And I think it was that more than anything that, that attracted me. I'm Adira Polite, and this is Then God Moved. Hello. Hi. How are you? Good. Thanks for being here. Great. It's great to be. I love you. Got the Japanese wave behind you. Very nice. Yes, I do. I love that thing. One time I interviewed somebody and they told me he started prophesying after the interview and he was like, that painting is the season you're in. And I was like, I don't oh. think so. I was like, I'm fine. And then like a week later, I was in a storm and it was. Like, oh, no. Crazy. Oh, my gosh. That's wild. Yeah. That's neat. Wow. Yeah. Yep. So are you calling? Are you, are you calling from Emory? It says like Emory University in Georgia. Well, I'm. I live in Atlanta. I go to Candler School of Theology. Oh, good. And I live in Atlanta. Yep. Okay, it's neat. Emory's a good school too. Yeah, you're at, in Houston, right? You teach Houston, at Houston Baptist University. Yep, oh. Houston, Texas. Good oh, place. Awesome. All right. For our listeners, I am here with Professor Louis Marcos. He is the professor of English, and he's also the scholar in residence at Houston Baptist University. He has a pretty wide range of academic interests, including romantic and Victorian poetry and prose, C.S. Lewis, and film. And he's also authored around 19 or more books and hundreds of articles, very prolific writer. So I'm really excited to have you here. Thanks for having me on, Adira. Yeah. So I met you through our mutual friend, Darren Scott Jacobs, who is very much supporting this ministry. And so he said, you must talk to my friend, Louis Marcos. And I'm excited to understand y'all's relationship and just understand who you are as a believer and as a scholar. Great. Yeah, uh, Scott, uh, Darren and I have written a screenplay together about C.S. Lewis, and we're still trying to get it made. I mean, we've been in and out of contracts. It's not easy, but uh, but yeah, our friendship has really blossomed over the last 10 years. And we're just, we're hopeful. Wow, like a, a biopic? Yeah, yeah, it, it, it'll be one about C.S. Lewis is coming to faith and about the difficult decision he had to make to do the broadcast talks because he knew mm. that by doing the broadcast talks in the BBC, he was probably jeopardizing his Oxford career. And in fact, mm. he did. Oxford never gave him a professorship. And it wasn't mm. Adira just because he was open about his faith. He was also kind of punished for daring to popularize, right, mm. for willing to speak to the people where they are and also for willing to speak about Christianity, even though he wasn't a trained theologian like me, he was an English professor, but he believed as I do very much uh, that we need more generalists. I really feel that our country and particularly our universities are overly specialized and we've lost a sense of true wisdom. You know, Adira, Solomon is the wisest man who ever lived, not because Solomon was a rocket scientist or a brain surgeon, right? He had discernment. Mm. He could see the bigger picture. He could understand the fine chains of difference between good and evil. He asked for wisdom so that he, a young man, could actually run the kingdom of Israel. Mm -hmm. And he couldn't do it without the wisdom that usually comes with age and experience. And so Lewis not only helped me as a Christian, he helped me as a scholar to have the courage to generalize, to be a Renaissance man, to try to study in all different areas so that we can see the bigger picture. 
Mm-hmm. So how does that really relate to the Great Commission? So like evangelizing, like mm-hmm. as a professor, how do you evangelize without, you know, just beating students over the head with the Bible? Right. Now, first of all, again, I want an evangelism that's holistic, right? Because Christianity is rational. It makes sense. It is what we call a worldview that's consistent and coherent. But Christ not only speaks to the mind, he speaks to the heart, he speaks to the will, he also speaks to the imagination. You know, Lewis was able to not only make the logical argument in, say, mere Christianity or the problem of pain, but he was able to take the Christian worldview and incarnate it in his fiction, whether it's the Seven Chronicles of Narnia or even the screw tape letters and the great divorce that are novels and yet imaginative and yet apologetics and everything all at once. And so by taking a more rounded approach, you don't have to beat your students on the head <laughs> with the Bible, right? Yeah. Invite them into a conversation that asks the big questions. Who am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose? How do I know I'm a value? All of these very important issues that we all have to answer, even if we consider ourselves an atheist, Mm -hmm. we have to answer these questions. And so, you know, it's easy when I'm teaching a Christian writer like Lewis or Tolkien, Mm -hmm. but when I'm teaching the Iliad or the Odyssey or the Aeneid or Greek tragedy, I'm also trying to get my students to answer the big question and to wrestle. Mm. And when we look at these great pagan pre-Christian writers, we see that they're pointing forward towards the fuller revelation of Christ in the Bible. They don't have all the answers, Adira, but they ask the right questions. Mm. And those questions will find their climax or their culmination in Christ in the New Testament. Wow. Hmm. Do you see any similarities between the sorts of questions that they were asking and the sorts of questions presented in the Old Testament? I think they're, I think they're there. And in fact, one of the best examples of this visually is the Sistine Chapel by Michelangelo, mm-hmm. right? Most people have seen images along the central spine of the ceiling are these nine giant frescoes about creation, fall, and the flood. And remember, all of those things happened before God narrowed the focus to Abraham and the Jewish people. It's, he was still working with the whole world at that point. Mm-hmm. But then around those central frescoes are these giant paintings of the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, right, Ezekiel. And, and yet interspersed between the Old Testament prophets are the Greek and Roman sibyls. What are they doing there? What are these pagan priestesses, prophetesses doing there? Mm. Well, Michelangelo believed, as many people in the Renaissance and the Middle Age believed, that God also used the highest pagan poets, prophets, philosophers to prepare their own pagan world for the coming of Christ. So Christ is not only the Jewish Messiah who fulfills the Old Testament law and prophets, He is the Lord of all the nations who also fulfills the highest yearnings Mm. of the pagan people. Mm. That really gives a new perspective to all of the disobedience we see in the Old Testament and all of just like the pagan, you know, craziness. Because I feel like a lot of people read that and it's just like, uh, like, why is everything so violent? Why 
you know, or things the way that they are. And it's like, because of what you're essentially talking about is like a void. Like there's something that's needs to be filled. And we see that throughout the old Testament. And it's like, Jesus is that. Good. I mean, think about it, right? The Jews are no longer miraculously rescued from Pharaoh, from Egyptian slavery. Mm -hmm. They come out, they come into the wilderness, uh, Mount Sinai, up Moses goes. He stays away 40 days and they're already ready (laughs) to fill that void, as you say, with the golden calf, Mm -hmm. right? Already they want to say, this is the God that rescued us out of bondage in Mm -hmm. Egypt. That's why it, it's not a bad idea to keep some kind of a prayer journal. When you go through a difficult time and you think God has abandoned me, yeah. you can go back to your prayer journal and say, wait, 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 look at this. A year ago, two years ago, I was in this, you know, deep in this valley and I prayed and the Lord answered. How can I forget that so quickly? But we forget so quickly and want to turn to the other idols, whether it's uh, money or sex or fame or education or even good things. You know, I mean, family, good works, Mm -hmm. humanitarianism, patriotism, we we turn to those and again, use them to fill that void, forgetting that only Christ fills the God-shaped vacuum is what Mm -hmm. uh, Pascal called it. Mm, That's good. It sounds as if you're possibly speaking from experience. Was there a time in your life where you were trying to fill that void with other things? It is. I mean, it's, it's so easy to get caught up when you're in graduate school mm-hmm. and to get so caught up with your scholarship and your studies and whatnot. And it's easy to lose focus. Even more when you like learn Greek. I got I to just learn ancient Greek. And for a moment you think, ah, now I've got the Bible all figured <laughs> out. I could read the New Testament, at least in the, and it's no, it it can swell you up very quickly Mm. until you come down and regain your perspective and understand, you know, who's in control here Mm. and who's given you the gifts that you're trying to develop. So, especially graduate school and and not just getting the PhD, whether you're at law school, medical school, it's, they, they, they have a way of sort of puffing you up to think that you're self-sufficient and you've got it all figured out and somehow you're smarter, not only than the yokels, but you're even smarter than St. Paul. Cause you know, that guy, of course, was racist, sexist, homophobe, everything else, right? And we're smarter than he is. And, and, and you can always tell when the seminarians go bad because the first thing they do is they start speaking patronizingly about Paul. Well, that's Paul, right? And, and of course they, they completely forget that the person in the Bible who speaks the most about hell and sin and devils is actually Jesus. Uh, Paul speaks a lot more about grace, even Mm. than Jesus does. Right. Mm. So, I mean, it's it's kind of ironic, but it's, it's easy to lose your focus, especially in graduate school where they are building us up, Mm -hmm. right? Not edifying in the Christian sense, but building the tower of Babel inside of us. Let's put it that way. And it's easy to lose your focus and we need to be centered. And sometimes for me, at least, sometimes the the pre-Christian pagan literature can get us centered again by reading the myths and things like that and getting us anchored again and understanding the dangers, you know, whether you're Daedalus and Icarus, the the one who made the wings, right? And he Mm -hmm. flew too close to the Mm -hmm. sun. And sometimes for me, you know, in the past, I've often read Greek mythology devotionally and it's helped get me back on track. That's interesting because I feel like so many people are like, stay away. They're kind of like afraid of the classics, afraid of a lot of these things because they see it as being at odds with the Christian faith 
but you're seeing it as something that can actually point you back to Jesus. It is. I mean, it is, it is an absolute centerpiece of Christian theology that there's a difference between general revelation and special revelation. Special revelation is the way God speaks directly to us. Mm-hmm. And he did that through the Jewish people, through the prophets, through the Old Testament, the New Testament, and supremely through Christ. But I'm sure this bothers you. Dear. Are you telling me that until the coming of Jesus, God ignored 99% of the world and only cared about the Jews? Well, <laughs> only to the Jews did he speak directly, but he spoke to the rest of us through general revelation. That's the way God speaks through creation, the way he speaks through our conscience, the way he speaks through reason, and what C.S. Lewis called the good dreams of the pagans. Hmm. He speaks through our imagination, through our sense of wonder and awe. And again, these things are not perfect. And that's why, thank God as a Christian, we have the Bible as our measuring rod, as our touchstone that we can measure things against. But again, God does speak in yeah. other ways and in other times. He put a yearning in us so we might reach after him. Hmm. Do you remember when you first noticed that in your own life, that you had this void and that you were yearning for the Lord? Well, now, I grew up in the Greek Orthodox Church. And it's kind of interesting because the gospel is there in the Orthodox Church, like it's there in the Catholic Church. But sometimes they're not quite as evangelical in explaining it to you. It's there in the church service, right? And, and I'll tell you something funny. One of the first things that put a yearning in there is my father owned the gas station. And there was a great black preacher named John. And that poor guy didn't have any money. And so he couldn't pay for the vans my father was fixing. And so my father would let him come to my house and he would paint our house or do something. It was a really neat thing I saw my father do. And I remember that while he was painting the house and I was still a young guy, he put up his, you know, old boom box, as we call them, and he played gospel music. Hmm. Now, you might think it's odd that I never heard gospel music, but when you have Greek Orthodox, we never even heard, you know, what do you call it? Amazing Grace or anything they, they do kind of like Gregorian chants in the hmm. Orthodox Church. And I remember being attracted to that, not really knowing what it was, but there were little things like that that were, were there, but I didn't fully you know, understand. And then we had a couple who were teaching the Sunday school class for us, and they had just become believers. It was kind of the time of the Jesus movement. They were really into it, and they explained it to us more carefully and, and more, so I could understand. Mm-hmm. And that's when I became a believer in my teenage years. And mm-hmm. I grew there, and then when I got to college, it was really uh, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, small group yep. Bible studies that helped me to grow more. And then mm-hmm. in my case, God moved me into the evangelical world. But luckily, he made me a C.S. Lewis scholar. And when you're a C.S. Lewis scholar, you get to speak for every denomination there is because everybody <laughs> loves C.S. Lewis. And I had read the Narnia Chronicles as a kid, but didn't know at that point that there was a deeper Christian dimension. Loved them, but didn't know it. It wasn't until I came back and read them again. Again, that really helped me to understand a way to understand Christianity in the modern world and to reach out and things like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I'm very, very influenced by what they would call the small group movement. And ever since then, I've always had a Bible study meeting at my house of some kind or another. Uh, And so, you know, I'll lead worship at my house. We'll sing hymns and chorus songs. and, And all of that, you know, to me is where I've done probably the bulk of my spiritual growth. Mm, okay. Do you remember when you were a teenager and you first heard the gospel presented plainly and you responded? Do you remember that moment? Do you remember what it was about how they presented it that made it click for you? 
It, it really was the sort of God-shaped vacuum, right? It was, how do I really know I'm of value and worth? Because if you think about it, everything could be taken away from us, right? Our family, our money, our job, even, you know, somebody like myself who, who is a professor and a speaker, right? What if I got Alzheimer's or something mm. like that? And I, so everything can be taken away. Is there anything that can't be taken away from us? Mm. And ultimately it was Christ. And, and I was always moved, obviously, not only by John 3.16, but Romans 8, I think it is. Uh, God showed his love for us in this, mm. that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So mm. in other words, it was at the moment when there was absolutely nothing lovable about us right. that God died for us, right? And so to me, it's, it's all about... How do I know I'm of ultimate value? And again, it can't simply be your brain or your money or your career or your family because all of that can be taken away. Mm -hmm. There's got to be something unshakable. When everything else is shaken, what is unshakable? Mm. And it was Christ. And I think it was that more than anything that, that attracted me, right? I mean, you know, the hellfire sermon is good, but there's two ways. One is literally scaring the hell out of it, but the other <laughs> way is to realize that Christ's love is so real and so mm. foundational that you're drawn towards it. Man, you remember when Peter said, uh, it's after Jesus talks about eating my body and drinking my blood and everybody runs away. And he says to his disciples, are you going to leave me too? And Peter says, hey, where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And I think mm. it was it was that, it was that positive aspect that here was the answer. Here was a love that could not be taken away. How do you make the case for that love when it's not something that most people think that they can see? And I say it like that because, you know, as a non-believer, I would have said you can't see it, but I see it all the time. But you can't touch it, so to speak. So right. like from an apologetic standpoint, how did you wrestle with that? Because obviously you're a scholar, you question things. Did you doubt that? Um. So there, there wasn't exactly a period of rebellion for me, right? but it's still a matter of it being real mm -hmm. in your life. There's a point at which it becomes real, where Christ is the word made flesh. Mm -hmm. right? and, you know, when I speak, I'll use all sorts of arguments, and, but the one that I really love is, is what Lewis calls the argument by desire. Why is it that we all have a desire for something beyond our physical, natural world. Anything can set it off, a beautiful piece of music, a, mm -hmm. a work of literature, a film, work of art, anything can set off this yearning. And it's a yearning that not only nature can't fulfill it, nature can't even know anything about it. Mm. How is it that nature could produce in us something that nature knows something about, mm -hmm. right? As, as C.S. Lewis says, you know, we, we hunger. Well, there's food to fulfill that hunger. Yeah. We get thirsty. Well, there is drink, unless you're Baptist like me. There's drink <laughs> to fulfill that thirst, right? Well, if I yearn for something outside my physical, natural world, that suggests there is a source of that yearning, mm. right? If there wasn't such a thing as food, how could we yearn for it, mm. right? And so it points us beyond ourselves to something that's there. And in Christ, we find someone, not just something, but someone mm. that fulfills that yearning, that knows about it. That's why I believe that we can say to people, if you are a true seeker, if you truly yearn, Christ will reveal himself to you. And 
he'll reveal himself in the way only you knew you needed to be revealed to. Mm -hmm. But Adira, we know that there is such a thing as a phony seeker. There's yeah. a true seeker and a false seeker. A false seeker says, I just like seeking as an end in itself. I don't really want to find anything. I don't want to be stuck. Right? Or, well, I'm going to seek God so he can reveal himself and then I can decide. Well, well, no. I mean, if you're a true seeker, you've got to be saying, Lord, if you know me, you will reveal yourself in a way that I need to know and then I will accept. But we're, we're not a true seeker if we say, I'll seek so you can reveal and then I'll think about it. Think of the Magi, right? The journey of the Magi. These, these people are obviously not Christians. They're not any Christians yet, but they're not Jews. They are following their general revelation, their limited wisdom. They are following that star. They understand that that star means something. And so they followed it and it led them to the Christ child. Now, when they got there, they could have said, you've got to be kidding me. We came a thousand, ah, forget this, I'm going home and I will never follow another star. And that's what some people do when they say, what, you're telling me Jesus is the only way to, to God? Forget it. No, but that's not what the, what the Magi said is, yes, here is what I have been seeking for all my life. I never could have guessed it. But now that I'm here, I recognize that this is the end point mm -hmm. of all my seeking and yearning. And the proof that that is what they thought is they not only gave their gifts, they knelt down and they worshipped an infant. Mm. After uh, Paul made his speech at the Areopagus, a lot of them laughed at him. What are you talking about? That's ridiculous, right? But a few people thought, not a whole lot, but a few people followed him mm. and became believers. So we have to be careful, this modern mindset that says everything is about numbers and statistics. Well, you know what? If all that matters is numbers, Jesus was a failure. What, he was only able to keep 12 people close to them and they all ran away and one betrayed him and one denied him. I mean, we got to get away from this modern American statistics-driven notion that I'm only a good preacher if my congregation grows to 10,000 people. No, mm -hmm. you know, we, we can't do it like that, right? We're sent out to be witnesses and only one person may believe. But it's, you know, it's about quality, folks, not about quantity. <laughs> and anyway... Billy Graham would have told you that it's not like people come off the street and he preaches and they all are saved. No, almost all the people he said that come forward at his crusades were people that were led there by friends or family members or fellow church members that had been praying for years. And this is just the moment that God used for the reaping. Mm -hmm. But the reaping doesn't happen if we're not sowing seeds and watering them and nurturing them. Right. And so, again, let, let's not get focused only on numbers. Our job is to reach out. I see where you're coming from. I see your pain. But come, let me lead you to the person. Uh, here, another cute way of putting it is, look, I don't know everything, but I do know the person who knows everything. Okay. And let me lead you to that person. So it's a matter of drawing people. Sometimes we just got to get ourselves out of the way and draw them there and let the Holy Spirit do the rest. Does it make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. And it's making me wonder, because you were talking about the difference between phony seekers and like true seekers. I am kind of wondering if the only real difference is the Holy Spirit. Because I think about my conversion, and it's like, I was not a willing participant in my conversion. I wasn't like seeking the Lord and saying, you know, if you show up, I'm going to surrender everything. I was like kicking and screaming. And he said, we're going. 
And he, it was just like, he took over my life. And that's kind of how it happened. And you probably are quoting C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis said that I was the most reluctant convert, dragged kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God, looking <laughs> trying to get escape, right? Think of what he did to Paul. Sometimes God's got to do something as crazy as the road to Damascus. But a lot of times he doesn't, right? A lot of times quiet, still, small voice. But Paul just needed to be literally knocked off his horse and yeah. blinded for a while That's to me. hear. Okay, that was you. And that yeah. was certainly C.S. Lewis, right? God kept reaching and reaching until he just had to smack him upside the head. Uh, other people, it's a little more gentle, a little more gradual. But whatever it is, there's always the moment of surrender. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like falling in love, right? You might be a guy, you see this girl, you oh, you're attracted to her. Yeah, you look at, you do your research, you make sure she didn't come from a crazy family, whatever, <laughs> right? But there still comes a time deep in your heart when you have to yield yourself and say, I'm going to trust. I'm going to trust in my love for that person and I'm going to take a risk. There's always going to be a moment. Like I said, it's not always the walk down the aisle, Southern Baptist thing. But there is a moment of yielding, right? You probably know that C.S. Lewis said that the moment was kind of odd for him. He was coming close, and his brother was going to the zoo. And his brother was riding a motorcycle that had one of those sidecars. And C.S. Lewis was sitting in the sidecar. And Lewis said, I don't know the exact moment, but all I know is when I left, I did not believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. And when I got to the zoo... I did believe there was a moment of yielding somewhere along the way. And he couldn't tell you the exact moment, but he knew there was a moment when we yield to Christ. Mm. And sometimes we are kicking and screaming when we do it. (laughs) Like when everybody in the world knows that you should be proposing to that girl and marrying her, except you. And then your friends say, what took you so long, buddy? Wasn't Mm. it obvious? Okay. Of course with Christ, He's not going to fail us. Any human relationship is never going to be perfect. But still, there is a moment of yielding, of obedience. And a lot of us fight against that. Uh, what does C.S. Lewis call The black satanic wish to kill or die rather than to give in. Mm. Sometimes we hold on like that. Even if we're the nicest little grandma, we still all have that clutching inside of us that we need to let go. Yeah, yeah. The sad part is that at least in my experience, after that first surrender, there's so many more episodes just like that, where it's like, all right, I surrender my life to Christ. But then, you know, a month later, I'm holding on to something else and he has to pry it from my hands. C.S. Lewis said somewhere, I think it's, in a way, we're all called to be martyrs. But for a lot of us, it's not being, you know, shot by a terrorist or whatever. It is a little death. Every time we yield and give up our, our anger, our pride, our envy, our bitterness, whatever it is, Every time we yield that, it is kind of a little death. It's mm-hmm. a little martyrdom. And we need to do it. It's a, it's a series of that, right? So there is the moment of salvation, but then there's the long road of sanctification. Mm-hmm. That's what Pilgrim's Progress is about, right? He is saved in the beginning of the book, but we have to watch him as he struggles every step along the way with mm-hmm. things like despair. And it's so easy to fall off the path. And every time we need to come back onto the path because it's a lifelong journey or pilgrimage. Mm. Yeah. So turning a little bit to your career, my goal with this ministry is really to make the stories of redemption that we like all carry accessible. 
And I've read a little bit about your work and it seems like you're also pretty focused on making knowledge accessible, taking knowledge out of you know the ivy, ivory tower right. and making it accessible to the general populace. And so I'm wondering how you do that, just generally speaking, what does it actually look like to make your work accessible? What you've got to do is get to the essence You've got to get to those core questions we mentioned before. Who am I? Why am I here? And when you can connect at that level, and you've got to learn to just get rid of the jargon words and try to get to the simple words. And, you know, a, a lot of times there are certain jargon words in Christianity that if mm-hmm. we use the word, they may just shut down and they won't yep. listen. Mm-hmm. You've got to find a way to go around that. And one of the best ways to go around that is just simply story. We all love stories. I don't care what age we are. We love narratives. And so we've got to get to the core of the Christian story and talk about it that way, Mm -hmm. the narrative approach, the imaginative approach. And so that's what I'm always doing, especially if I'm speaking in the museum or something where it might be a more secular audience. But they too, why are you so drawn by Dante's Inferno? What does Dante's Inferno teach us about the psychology of sin? So even if you don't believe in God, even if you don't believe in hell, we all know that we can make our own hells on this earth. Right. And we can set our, get ourselves trapped in a, a cycle, right? Where, where, where anger gets us so caught, we can't break out of it. We all know about that. So I often use that phrase, psychology of sin. Let's talk about how we can get ourselves caught in something like bitterness or anger so that we literally lose ourselves, right? One of the ways I explain it is, okay, let's say I'm really angry or I'm bearing a grudge. You immediately split into two people. There's the me that's going, ah, and then there's the real me who's standing next to me and saying, let it go, Mm. let it go, You can let it go, but you know what happens? If you keep holding on to that grudge and nursing it and going over it again and again, sooner or later, that other person disappears and you become the grudge going on forever, Mm. like a broken record. This can happen to any of us, right? And we need to find a way out. But let's first understand that there's a problem. And again, look, I, I don't care if you say You don't believe that there is really a universal moral ethical code, but everybody knows that there's a universal moral ethical code because that's the way you expect other people to treat you. Mm. So I don't care how many times you say you believe that, that morality is completely relative and there's no standard. If somebody cuts in front of you online, (laughs) you're going to get angry, right? Because you understand that there is right and wrong. And so I don't, we just kind of blind ourselves to it. We need to come at it. And the best way to do it is through a story, like, like the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's amazing. Endgame ends with the most self-centered and stuck up of all the superheroes is the one that sacrifices himself at the end, Iron Man, right? So we're understanding. We, we can't. Sometimes they try to make politically correct fairy tales, but they almost always turn into themselves. Mm. <laughs> there is only one real story. It's the mm. story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, and ultimately glorification. Mm. That's the story that underlies all of our stories. Mm. What is it you really desire and yearn for? What is missing? What Again, the God-shaped vacuum, right? All of us know it's there. And sometimes we try to fill it up with bad things, but we also try to fill it with good things. Mm -hmm. Mother love, 
good works, patriotism, uh, humanitarian, all of these are good things. But you know what, Adira? They don't really fill it. They, they seem to fill the void, but they really don't. And so we're searching and we're searching for something real, something eternal. You know, when Christ died for us, he did it once for all. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. Once for all. Right? We do need to keep going back and repenting. Okay. But I mean, right. he, he paid for it in one shot, which is kind of amazing. Right. Because we all have things in our life. Right? Have you ever thought about like doing the laundry? You go, <laughs> you do the laundry. It's really wonderful. Everything's clean. And then you got to do it again next week. That must be how that woman at the well felt every day carrying that heavy. And then the water runs out. You got to do it again. And then mm-hmm. Jesus told her, I'm going to give you living water that will become inside you like a fountain springing up to eternal life. Mm-hmm. Isn't that what we all need? Something that is real that we can hold on to so that that life is inside of us. It's different. You know, people sometimes that are like in the martial arts, they're like, the power is within. But what they mean is that's me inside, right? But when a true Christian says the power is inside, what they should mean is the Holy Spirit is indwelling me and greater is he who is in you, the Holy Spirit, than he who is in the world, the devil ultimately. But if the devil came in my room, I wouldn't sit down and try to you know, convince him to be a follower, right? Because I am weaker than Satan, right? but the Holy Spirit inside me is so strong. So what do you do? You rebuke him in the name of Christ using scripture and he goes, okay? You, you don't sit down and have a dialogue with the devil because he will fool us because he's the father of lies. And we as a human being are not stronger. The Holy Spirit inside of us is what is stronger. And and, and you know, it's the word of God, which is Christ and the Bible itself. Yeah, amen. I feel like we're in church right now. There we go, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, in closing, I just want to know, in light of your calling, what do you think your message is to the non-believer? If you're a non-believer, I mean, like a real one, that's like running away. You want nothing to do with religion. Generally speaking, I mean, nothing's 100%. Probably you saw some real hypocrisy in your parents, in your church, wherever you are. You probably said, as all of us have said, you got angry and you said, Mom, Dad, you don't understand me and you don't want to understand me. And so often, we've all had that moment, right? And we just feel like nobody understands us. And then I remember, you know, of course nobody could understand us. The only way your parents, let's say, could really, really understand you is if like one of those Freaky Friday movies and they change places with you. But that doesn't happen, okay? We can be as empath- we can try for empathy as much as we can, but none of us can fully, completely understand what the other person's going through. So how can God understand us? You can stay up there on the mountain and give us the Ten Commandments and do all sorts of things. But God, if you really are real, then you've got to be able to find a way to really understand me. Mm. And what really drove me to Christ is just, it was the cross. But more than anything, it's what's called the incarnation, that God became man, Mm. that God became one of us. He understands you. Look, Whenever we think of Good Friday, you know, the crucifixion, all we think about is the pain. And there is no more painful way of dying than being on the cross. But I tell you, if Christ was on this Zoom with us right now and you asked him what was the worst part of Good Friday, I don't think he would have said the pain Mm -hmm. because we've all dealt with pain and we do not remember pain. Our body doesn't remember pain. I think he would say the worst part was the betrayal 
people turning against him, spitting upon him. That's the hardest thing. We've all felt physical pain and it's terrible, but it goes away. But if there was a time when your mother or father said to you, you're useless and I hate you and screamed at you, you will never forget that. In fact, look, maybe you broke your arm 10 years ago. If I tell you, try to remember the breaking of your arm. You can't, you can say, oh, I remember it hurt, but you can't relive pain. The body doesn't work that way. But if I said, I want you to remember that time when you were eight and your father chewed you out and told you you were useless and terrible, if you start to remember that, you know what will happen, Adira? You will start getting red, you will start getting flushed, and you might even start crying because we never, ever forget emotional pain when we've been humiliated and embarrassed and called out. Mm. Folks, I want you to understand that God understands that mm. because he became one of us yes. and understood all the indignity, being thrown out, being an outcast. He understood it. Mm. That is what can draw you to Christ, that he understands. He didn't just bear the weight of our sin. He bore the weight of all our embarrassment and humiliation. Mm. That is fantastic. <laughs> Thank you so much. That was awesome. Oh my gosh. I'm excited to share this episode. I know it's going to bless, I pray, many people. Thank you for taking the time to do this. Thanks, Adira. Keep, keep up the good work. This is important. So thanks for what you're doing, Adira. God bless. Thank you. God bless you. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please take a second and leave us a rating and a review. Goodbye until next time.